Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the things that happened in our lives this week, the different paths that our path crossed this week, everything that led us up to this point, being in your house, having your word open in front of us, and hearing what you have for us to hear. Lord, I pray as, as Elder Hillegas prayed that uh, these words wouldn't be something that would go in one ear and out the other, but Lord, I pray that we would internalize them and that we would make changes in our lives that we need to make. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The World Cup happens every four years. And it just so happens that the World Cup is taking place this year. And it just so happens that the 2018 World Cup is finishing up today. Does anybody know that? The World Cup is finishing up today. The final game is today. final game is actually taking place uh, at some point at 11 a.m. I don't know where in the world what time frame that is, but at some point at 11 a.m. Uh, I also discovered something very interesting about the finals of the World Cup. In the U.S., teams in a league play each other through a tournament or playoffs or a series until only two teams remain, who then play each other to determine a champion. My favorite is the American Super Bowl, where the winner of that game is declared the world champion even though the NFL League only exists right here. But still, you're declared the champion of the entire world. That's, that's pretty good. You, you play in one country, and you automatically get the whole world by default. But with the world, a big difference with the World Cup is that there is an obvious final match to determine an actual world champion, which is taking place today. But there is also another last game, so to speak, between the third and fourth ranked teams to determine a third place winner. And that took place yesterday. Apparently third place in the World Cup is so coveted that an extra game has to be played to determine who that honor will be bestowed upon. I've also heard something else in comparing soccer to every other sport in the world. And that's how crazy the different soccer fans can be. Maybe some of you heard of them, okay. So in honor of the World Cup being played today, here are the top three craziest soccer fan stories I found, according to the website complex.com. In 2005, in Italy, two soccer teams from the same city of Milan, Italy, played a showdown game in the 2005 Champions League match. Early on in the game, one player from Inter Milan appeared to have intentionally headbutted a player from AC Milan, which distastefully set the tone for the rest of the game. The game got so heated towards the end that when AC Milan, who was already up 3 to 0, was awarded a free kick in the late minutes of the game, Inter Milan fans exploded and started throwing lit flares onto the field which you can see there in the background, with one of them hitting AC Milan's goalkeeper. At that point, the officials called the game, awarding the victory to AC Milan, and penalized Inter Milan by forcing them to, to play their next four home games in front of an empty stadium. In 2011, in a match between two Swedish soccer teams in Stockholm, when the soccer fans were already facing collective punishment from the stadium officials, decided to stage a protest in response. At that game, the entire stadium was silent for the first 10 minutes of the match. 
which at any game, but especially at a soccer match, is an especially eerie environment. The silence by both teams' fans continued until a more radical group decided to light firecrackers out of nowhere, scaring the pants off of everyone at the stadium, especially the stadium officials who sent both teams back to their locker rooms. The fans set out to display to the stadium officials how important their presence to the games were, but ended up just solidifying the stadium officials' fears about them. My favorite story, however, took place at a soccer match in 2002 at a stadium in Barcelona, Spain. The two teams playing each other that day were Madrid and Barcelona. A player named Luis Figo had defected from Barcelona to Madrid shortly before this match. As the two teams squared off and Figo was now playing for Madrid against his former team in his former team's home stadium, one fan decided to bring along a gift for Figo to that game. As Figo lined up to take a corner kick, this one fan took out what he had brought with him to the stadium that day, a pig's head, and threw it directly at Figo from the stands. This act was followed by numerous Barcelona fans throwing other pieces of garbage at Figo, and Barcelona was fined 4,000 euros. <laughs> this guy planned this whole thing out, went and bought a pig's head, and risked jail time or being banned from his hometown stadium by smuggling it into the stadium with the sole goal of just throwing it at this particular athlete. That was his end goal. I've heard of snowballs filled with rocks and beverage cups being thrown at opposing teams, but a pig's head takes it to a whole other level of passion for your beloved's, beloved team's wounded pride. Why do sports teams, apparently especially soccer fans, act so crazy in how they act at certain games. The bottom line is that it all comes down to their level of fierce loyalty to their favorite team. That's what it all comes down to. We can see how this fierce loyalty creates obvious divisions in the sports world. But in our passage this morning, Paul has to address a situation in the Corinthian church in which fierce loyalties were creating divisions that were actively destroying the church. We'll take a look at this situation, how Paul addressed it, and what direct connection it has for us today. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the division. We'll talk about the actual situation here. We've talked about the background that led up to the divisions that Paul is referring to here the past couple of weeks, but let's hone into the specific background that directly feeds into what Paul says here in verses 10 through 16. We remember from the past couple of weeks that Paul stayed and ministered in Corinth for how long again? 18 months. A whole year and a half. We talked about how that's a long time, 18 months, a whole year and a half, especially when it came to Paul's ministries in other cities, say Thessalonica or Berea or Athens and Ephesus for the first time. A year and a half is a long time to establish and root the Corinthian church. But what that also means is 18 months is a long time to establish highly influential and deep relationships. That's a long time, isn't it? 
Not only was Paul the church establisher, so to speak, but in many ways, Paul was the spiritual father of many in the church. They saw him as their church leader. He had spent many hours having conversations and personally investing in these particular believers' lives. For many who had come out of paganism or simple consuming materialism, Paul was the spiritual leader in their lives because he was the one who had personally led them out of spiritual darkness and into the light. Paul had rejoiced with them. He had cried with them. He had experienced loss with them, dealt with impending persecution with them, and like any good church leader, walked with them through their happy and painful experiences of living in this broken and cursed world with faith in Jesus Christ. At one point, he was one of them. He was their family. That, that's just what happens when a church leader is invested in his church. We know of Paul's strong relationship with other churches he established and strengthened, for instance, the Galatian churches at one point and the Thessalonian church. But similar to these other churches, Paul knew that his time in Corinth was coming to a close. Shortly after the event with Sosthenes before the judgment seat of the Corinthian governor over a Kai named Galileo, he must move on to plant and strengthen other churches. So in Paul's administrative fashion, he appointed elders uh, over the church in Corinth to lead the church and carry on the work of the gospel, and then he moved on to the next place. Paul left Corinth after 18 months and took a strong Corinthian Christian couple named Aquila and Priscilla. He had met, worked, and lived with in Corinth with him. Shortly thereafter, the three of them made their way to Ephesus for the first time. So here we are in Corinth, and eventually they made their way over to Ephesus for the first time. After leading some souls to faith in Jesus in Ephesus, Paul left to finish out his second missionary journey, leaving Aquila and Priscilla behind in Ephesus to continue to build up and strengthen the church there. While in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla meet an eloquent and powerfully spoken Christian man named Apollos. Apollos knew the Jewish scriptures very well. And he could very powerfully point to people how Jesus is the Messiah. He had a bit of misunderstanding about Jesus' connection to baptism. So Aquila and Priscilla gently and sensitively took Apollos aside and explained from the scriptures the biblically correct understanding of it. Apollos, even though being an eloquent man, was also humble enough to accept their teaching. At some point, Apollos had heard about the church back in Corinth, and had expressed his desire to Aquila and Priscilla to go preach the gospel, further the kingdom of God, and strengthen the church in Corinth. Knowing Apollos' great potential for the gospel, Aquila and Priscilla encouraged him to go. We read this about Apollos' ministry while in Corinth. So Apollos went from Ephesus, where he met Aquila and Priscilla, over to Corinth. And this is what we read about his ministry there. Apollos had been thinking about going uh, to, to Achaia, where Corinth was, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. 
When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments and public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. So when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. We talked about how close many of the church members in the Corinthian church were to Paul. They saw him as their spiritual leader. After all, he had led them to faith in Jesus. He was the one to laugh and cry with them. And he was the one who had poured his heart and soul into their church. Now, at some point shortly after, the, after that, this new guy named Apollo shows up. He also proves to be learned in the scriptures. And he also leads many other people in Corinth to faith in Jesus. He also strengthens the church through his teaching, and he also furthers it and grows it in their faith. Here was the potential for tension, though. There were many already in the church who regarded Paul as their spiritual leader. Now there are many in the church who regard Apollos as their church leader. Some who had been members of the church when Paul was there also appreciated Apollos' ministry, and some who had been members of the church when Paul was there remained staunch in their loyalty to Paul and disregarded Apollos. Paul was no longer there while Apollos was, but that did not change their level of loyalty to them, nor is there evidence that any of these church leaders encouraged any sort of loyalty to themselves. Do you see the tinderbox for fiery division in this church. In fact, Paul directly describes this tinderbox that has already been set aflame by many in the church. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want everybody to see this with me, starting in verse 10, reading through verse 12. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by his authority, not Paul's, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. So what is Paul getting at there in those verses? You can sense Paul's frustration with the Corinthian church here. He may have even been thinking to himself as he wrote these words, I don't even understand why this is even a thing and why I even have to address this. Apparently during Paul's third missionary journey towards the end of his two and a half year second stint in Ephesus, so we follow the green arrow here, he passed through the Galatian cities again, once again, once again came to Ephesus and stayed there for two and a half years during his third missionary journey. Towards the end of this two and a half year second stint in Ephesus, some from the household of the Corinthian church member named Chloe came to visit Paul and tell him about this destructive division taking place in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was probably made up of several house churches who met in more affluent members' homes, and Chloe's home may have been one of the locations of the Corinthian church. 
While this would cause some natural division, as has been pointed out by one biblical scholar, what Paul is addressing here in in verses 10 through 12 is far more unnatural and a destructive source of division than simple geographical separation. If you remember from the past couple of weeks, the aristocracy of Corinth was mostly made up of the new rich, or people who made their fortune on sea trade and other business. According to one biblical scholar, Chloe was most likely one of these wealthy business people, and, was prob- and it was probably servants from her household who traveled to Paul in Ephesus and told him about this certain division going on in Corinth. From what we've already talked about, what, what, from what we've already talked about, It may already be obvious what the division was that was taking place in the Corinthian church, but what was this division? Paul refers in verse 12 that people were claiming among each other, I am of Paul, or I have Apollos. Now what is he talking about here? One biblical scholar noted that people naturally gravitated to different philosophers and teachers. In fact, different ancient philosophers and even rabbis would encourage it creating an order of their own disciples and schools of thought. See, loyalty has always been a powerful characteristic of humanity. Can't take it out of a human. It can be a unifying force, and it can be a destructive force. We can see that today. It's a part of who we are as human beings. Nothing has changed in the past 2,000 years. If placed solely on God and his design for what he's created, it can be a powerful force for good. If placed on anything else, no matter how seemingly insignificant or harmless, it can snowball into something very destructive. We see the effects of that snowballing right here in verse 12. Some in the Corinthian church placed an emphasis on loyalty towards Paul as the church leader in their lives. Some in the Corinthian church placed an emphasis on loyalty towards Apollos as their church leader in their lives. They were using Paul's and Apollos' different skill sets as spiritual leaders and orators as reasons to create these different camps of loyalty within the church contrasting those skill sets and claiming each camp was superior to the other. That's what this snowballed into. Paul rhetorically adds Cephas, or Peter, at the, uh, towards the end, as if to say, this situation is so ludicrous that I wouldn't be surprised if some of you claimed Peter as your spiritual leader and compared him in, sup- in superiority to the others. And then Paul even takes it one step further and also rhetorically adds Jesus at the end as another spiritual church leader that some are using to create even further Division. And what do I mean by this? By Paul rhetorically adding Jesus to the end of the list. According to one biblical scholar, apparently some had even distanced themselves from everyone else, thinking themselves to be above and outside of the existing bickering by denouncing any spiritual leader's influence on their faith growth and only claiming Jesus as the only one they had to listen to. They may have acted like no spiritual leader God had given to them or the church had any authority over them, and they only had to listen to Jesus himself or what they thought he might be telling them. 
we see how out of hand everything had gotten by this point in the Corinthian church, don't we? I hope we've seen from all the background that I set up that what started out as a tinderbox with the potential for out-of-control fire had indeed been lit and ignited a full-blown, roaring situation of chaos that was on the verge of completely destroying the church. We see here a perfect example of what happens when fierce loyalty towards any human, especially a spiritual leader, goes unchecked and unlimited. This serious situation that Paul addresses here directly feeds into what else he will say to the Corinthians further on in this letter. But for now, let's see how Paul directly addresses this snowball of a situation. So we talked about the situation of division. And next we're going to talk about the directive, what Paul says to address this situation. Paul does not pull any punches here. This is his response, verses 13 through 16. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. He says to them, Where in the gospel of Jesus Christ that I first preached to you and you first believed in, the same exact one that says that there is one God, one baptism, and one body of Christ, does it say create unnecessary and destructive divisions? Where does it say in that gospel? Does it say it anywhere? Has the body of Jesus himself been divided up? Has Jesus himself been divided up into different types of disciples who place more emphasis on their loyalty to Jesus' disciples than they do to Jesus himself? Is your faith based on what Paul, Paul or Apollos or any mere human has done? The obvious and loud answer to this rhetorical question is a resounding no. Of course not. The church of Jesus Christ should be the most unified body in the entire world. Why? Because as Paul will write to the Ephesians, Jesus loved the church so much that he died for her. Division flies in the very face of that. Because of that... Our enemy knows that the very quickest way to create tension that would snowball into the destruction of Jesus' church is to do what? Is to create division. This ranges from church splits to seemingly insignificant personal discontentment with a church or its church leadership. And instead of keeping that to oneself and seeking to work that out with those it only needs to be worked out with, creating a camp within the church for adherence of that discontentment and feeding tension that snowballs into destructive division. This division mocks the suffering and death of the one who declared, upon this rock, upon myself, I will build my church. Paul goes even further by saying in verse 14, I thank God that I didn't even baptize any of you, so you can't even claim me. 
except Crispus and Gaius. Who were Crispus and Gaius? Acts 18 tells us that the synagogue leader in Corinth, when Paul first started ministering in Corinth, who was the predecessor of Sosthenes, whom we've already talked about, was a man named Crispus. This is what happened with Crispus. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, this is from Acts 18, believed in the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So Crispus, and also perhaps Gaius, were among the first Corinthians that Paul had led to the Lord and had baptized in that new faith. We also learn from 1 Corinthians 16.15 that Stephanus, along with his entire household, were also among the first Corinthians that Paul had led to faith in Jesus. We read, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, the first people that Paul led to the Lord in Corinth, and that they have, a, they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. So Paul only baptized a few of the members of the Corinthian church. Those who had first heard and believed his message of salvation found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Apparently, others in the church had baptized other believers in the church because Paul makes a strong point about it. According to one biblical scholar, Paul was denouncing especially the camp that adhered in loyalty to him because he pointed out he only baptized a few of them, leaving the rest to be baptized by other believers. Paul wanted nothing to do with this. So we talked about the situation, that fiery snowball of division. Next, we talked about what he said in addressing that. And third, we're going to talk about the direct connection. You may have already picked up on the first and most obvious direct connection to us today. We see in our passage this morning how out of control and destructive any divisional situation similar to this can be. 2,000 years ago have gone by, and the power of humans naturally gravitating towards different leaders and even creating their own mini camps of adherence has not waned. You see it in local churches, and you see it in the universal church. One form of this is to allow a type of personal loyalty towards any given leader, past or present, to cloud one's judgment in regards to what God wants for his church and how he has designed his church to function. Hopefully we've seen from our passage this morning how potentially destructive a tinderbox of this type of situation can be. What we see in the Corinthian church, what we see Paul addressing here is the end result. didn't start out this way. He's addressing the end result. The leaders of a church recognizing a potentially similar situation and taking precautions and placing protection so that it does not snowball into something worse can prevent a situation like this in Corinth from happening. Similar to the response of those who don't want to see things this way is the response to renounce any kind of authority that God has placed in a church and their teaching from God's word. Paul also did say elsewhere, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love, not because of you like what they're doing or you agree with everything, every decision that they're making, but because of their work and because it's what God's word commands us to do 
And then he follows up with these words, and live peacefully with each other. It's a very powerful statement, isn't it? And the author of Hebrews wrote, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. In different situations, it is very easy to default to personal opinions of how things should be and allowing that to bypass the leadership God has placed over his church and to create many camps of discontentment. The so-called worship wars is connected to this. That of declaring one form of musical worship to be superior to another form, mainly traditional hymns versus modern worship songs. Another example of this in general is pitting the way things used to be against the way things are now. At the church I used to serve at in Philadelphia, when the, when the then senior pastor retired and the congregation installed me as the new senior pastor there, one of his last sermons to the congregation included a statement that I will always respect him for. His statement in reference to me was this. He is not me. He will not be the pastor I was. He will not do things the way I did them. And he will not lead the church the same way I did. And you know what? That's perfectly okay because he is the leader God has placed in this church in this time and he deserves this church's respect because of that. That's the statement he made. We need to be extremely careful to discern if discontentment with a church leadership's decision or a leadership is based on, on unbiblical doctrine, grievous sin, or is simply a matter of personal preference and how we wished things could or would be. The Corinthians' blatant division was based on personal preference, and we see where that got them. As we see in scripture, God has designed his church with clear leadership and a clear responsibility to rely on his leading to make the decisions they unanimously agree upon. Anything that seeks to bypass that or undermine that in order to create disunity mocks the very cross of Christ. The situation Paul addressed is one that every church must learn from and to not allow to go down that same road. That starts with each and every one of us to check the influence of our personal preferences and to not allow them to cause disunity, dissension, and division. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the Great Commission is the mission of each church that recognizes Jesus as their King and Savior and seeks to obey His word. That is the one unifying force of the church that is made up of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and that is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all may have, we all have our personal preferences. But when we let those personal preferences become personal precedences, we ignite the tinderbox of that division, 
We, use, we lose sight of what Jesus has actually called us to. And you know what happens? We soon become irrelevant and uninfluential, leading to ultimate destruction. And guess what? Let you in on a little secret. That's exactly the way the enemy of our church wants it to be. However, when we set those aside and we place our entire focus on Jesus and take up the unifying flag of the gospel and go to battle with the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be an unstoppable force for God's kingdom in this greater community and in this world. We will break the chains of darkness, free those from spiritual captivity in this world, and reclaim territory from the prince of darkness. With the unifying bond of peace from the Holy Spirit, there's no limit to how God can and will use us in this world. That must be far more motivation and inspiration than anything else can offer. God will use a unified church, all headed in the same direction, to accomplish His unthwartable plan. He will fill us with the boldness and the courage of the Holy Spirit to build up his church and snatch more souls from the clutches of evil. So let us, as one, as one body, not allowing anything else to distract us or take our focus off of this one mission, take these verses as a battle cry for God's purpose, design, and goal for us. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. That is the, pretty much an exact reference to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his authority that I'm saying all of this, not mine, that you all agree and that there be some division, maybe little ones here and there. No division. No division among you, but that you may be made complete in this sort of similar minds. Maybe if one or two here don't quite get on board with that. No, the same mind and in the same judgment. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. We will speak the truth in love growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. I love that. Perfectly. Not one person here does not fit together with this church perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power 
of the inspired words that you gave to Paul that are still just as relevant to us today. Lord, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and we would humble ourselves and we would really ask ourselves between us and you, are there any personal preferences that I'm making personal precedences that are creating a tinderbox Lord, I pray that we would be humble enough to recognize that and that we would also be humble enough to set that aside. And Lord, that the only flag, the only torch, the only thing that we carry to march forward with is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may be one body with one mission and the one love of Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.